The corner of Main Street and Madison Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee is like every other downtown street corner in America. Except this one is where American music as we know it today began. Find out what happened this time on Blues Alley. Episode 2, Mr. Crump, Don't Allow It. If you know anything at all about blues music, you know that tales of mysterious goings-on down at the crossroad abound. You can't swing a dead guitar without hitting one of these mystical intersections where supernatural deals are struck in exchange for exceptional musical prowess. In almost all of these legends, though, the crossroad is a rustic, isolated place. Two narrow ribbons of highway, dirt road, or railroad intersecting in the middle of a delta cotton field. So what does that have to do with the corner of Maine and Madison in Memphis? I mean, who ever heard of an urban crossroad? Well, in Memphis, it's like the entire city is herself a crossroad. In fact, she's several all layered one on top of the other to make a cultural superhighway-slash-interstate-cloverleaf-junction crossroad. After all, this is the city that gave rise to both blues and rock and roll. The city of Memphis sits on Chickasaw Bluff, and there have been people living on that bluff for centuries. The area, named after the Chickasaw Indians, the Spartans of the Mississippi Delta, had a well-established government-slash-city-state there in 1540 when Hernando de Soto first arrived from Spain. The Chickasaw Nation was a highly developed society based on law, religion, agriculture, and commerce, using the Big Muddy River as a primary trade route. The bluff itself is a natural defensive position, rising as much as 200 feet above the river on the west side and the delta to the north, east, and south. The city we know today was established by John Overton, James Winchester, and Andrew Jackson in 1819, shortly before the Chickasaw were removed to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. Within a generation, Memphis had become the largest cotton exchange in the world, bigger than Cairo in Egypt, which had a few thousand years head start. And though Memphis was the largest city in the state of Tennessee, she's effectively the largest city in Mississippi and Arkansas as well. It's at least 200 miles in any direction before you hit another urban area anywhere close to the size of Memphis. In the 18 and 1900s, farmers from the Mississippi Delta came to Memphis every harvest, sold their crops to the cotton traders on Front Street, who in turn loaded them onto riverboats, which served as both a means of luxury transport and distribution of goods to the wider world. And the convergence of all these disparate cultures made the city of Memphis herself a unique kind of crossroad. Think about it. A stock exchange is a fast-paced, energetic, urban entity born of high finance and capitalism. The farmers that grew and harvested the cotton sold at that exchange belonged to a slower, genteel, agrarian society. Both the plantation owners and stock traders amassed enormous wealth. Wealth, of course, created a worker class of slaves and later sharecroppers who actually worked the fields. They remained impoverished with little hope of ever breaking free. 
Then there were the in-betweens, the musicians, riverboat crews, and roustabouts, people flush with cash who were just passing through and looking for a good time. The presence of the in-between class led to a burgeoning business in booze, gambling, and prostitution. One of the worst-kept secrets in Memphis is that the tax base was for decades largely centered on fines earned from vice. A Memphis judge named Pappy Haddon had invented Haddon's Horn, a leather funnel aimed at keeping the dice honest in backroom crap games on Beale. Vice was big business for both the hustlers and the city. The Public Ledger, a Memphis newspaper at the time, recounts a booming business at the police court in 1888. Pappy Haddon, now city manager as well as judge, would routinely have police raid the brothels and bring the ladies, along with their johns, into court to collect fines. On May 7, 1888, Haddon declared from the bench, with the press in the room, When you violate the rules, you must suffer the penalty of iniquity and divide the wages of sin with the city. Ten apiece. Thanks. Call again. Divide the wages of sin with the city. It perfectly sums up Memphis at the time. In the Southside Tenderloin, law, order, and morality were turned upside down. And that overturning of mores applied to white, black, rich, poor, city, country, and, as Handy would later write, honest men and pickpockets skilled. In Memphis, none of these entities could survive without the other. There was an interdependence, almost a codependence, among these polar socioeconomic groups. And the attraction device allowed them to get cozy. The lower class got to observe the wealthy elite close enough to taste that dream deferred that remained just beyond their fingertips. Country folk visiting the city took to metropolitan customs, taking the latest fashions and products like the phonograph and washing machine back home to the Delta. And while black and white fraternization was frowned on in society at large, on Beale, those rules were just ignored, and as a result, the upper crust, that wealthiest 1% who would never deign to mingle with the great unwashed, discovered an affinity for black culture, especially music. Out of necessity, vice, and commerce, Memphis had become a crossroad of rich and poor, city and country, black and white, righteous and sinner, and everybody had a foot in everybody else's camp. And it was in this environment, a little over a century ago, that the next event in the progression of blues music occurred. But to get there, we've got to delve into Southern 20th century politics. In 1909, a generation after Pappy Haddon, a wealthy businessman named Edwin H. Crump decided to run for mayor. In those days, candidates for office often hired a band to drum up interest, even write a song about their issues. It was kind of a great-grandfather to today's Rock the Vote campaign. Of course, in 1909, Jim Crow was the law of the land, so they used white bands in white communities and black bands in black communities. Now, Ed Crump had gotten into the race at the last minute, and the other popular black bands in Memphis were already engaged by competing candidates. There was one band available, however, 
and it was led by a composer-musician named W.C. Handy, who had a few years earlier become enamored with the unique style of music he'd heard in the Delta, specifically at a dance in Cleveland, Mississippi, where a group of rough-and-raw musicians out-earned his own professional players. Handy had already begun to marry that rustic Delta music with his polished conservatory style by the time the Ed Crump campaign came calling. And as part of that deal, Jim Mulcahy, the Crump political operative who hired the band, also commissioned an original song. Seeing an opportunity to further his musical goals, Handy wrote a blues tune. The song, he called Mr. Crump, was written leaning against the cigar stand at Pee Wee's Saloon at 317 Beale. Today, there's a hard rock cafe on the spot, but the original Pee Wee's Saloon was a unique place. Owned by John Persica, a mafia crime boss and brothel proprietor, the saloon was named for Virgilio Mafia, an Italian immigrant who had ridden the rails under a train car from New York to Memphis with only a dime in his pocket. No one could pronounce Virgilio, so everyone just called him Pee-wee. Pee-wee was a tough character. He loved gambling, once swimming the Mississippi to win a bet. He also coined the saloon's legendary slogan, We never close till somebody gets killed. A phrase that, like honest men and pickpockets skilled, would one day become a song lyric. In addition to the fabled cigar stand, there were side rooms for billiards, cards, crap games, and a back room where musicians could store their instruments. Pee-wee's also had a phone. Musicians were welcome to give out the four-digit number, 2893, and potential customers were welcome to call, as long as the players bought a couple of drinks while they waited for calls about gigs. It was the perfect place to write blues music. Handy wrote out note-for-note arrangements of Mr. Crump for his nine-piece band, and as usual, he meticulously, some said obsessively, rehearsed. When the bandwagon arrived at the corner of Maine and Madison for that first performance of Mr. Crump, Handy was accompanied by clarinetist Robert Young, the Weir Brothers and Jim Turner on violin, guitarist George Higgins, Archie Wall on bass, and James Osborne and George Williams on sax and trombone, respectively. Handy, of course, played trumpet. And while there's no recording of that first performance of Mr. Crump, James Reese Europe's Hellfighters Band recorded this version for Pathé in 1919, giving us an idea of how the song might have sounded on the day. As the band began to play, things began to happen. People from all stations of life stopped to listen. This curious and appealing music was really different from the marches and light opera fair bands usually played at the time. Then, at the end of the third stanza, something even more remarkable happened. One of the fiddlers, Paul Weir, began to play things that weren't written in the score. This wasn't normal. Musicians were meant to play only what was on the page, especially in a handy band. But Weir, as Handy's friend and later co-author Abby Niles wrote, went wild. In doing so, Paul Weir, a violinist, became the first person to play an improvised blues turnaround. The crowd loved it. Businessmen, that wealthy elite, began to dance in the street with their wives and secretaries. 
and handy, just as he had with the rustic musical genre in Cleveland, Mississippi, immediately saw the value of improvisation. From that moment on, his players had total freedom in the breaks and turnarounds. But what about the song itself? At Handy's later admission, Mr. Crump was based on an existing song called Mama Don't Lao. While the original version of Handy's tune was instrumental, a lyric quickly emerged. Now, the song would be published with a completely different lyric a few years later, but the 1909 lyric went like this. Mr. Crump don't lie, no easy riders round here. Oh, Mr. Crump don't lie, no easy riders round here. Well, I don't care what Mr. Crump don't lie. We gonna barrel house anyhow. Mr. Crump don't allow, ain't gonna have it here. Well, Mr. Crump can go and get itself some air. Mr. Crump can go and get himself some air. Not the most flattering of campaign sentiments. The song, which had been commissioned to support Ed Crump, had taken on a satirical twist, considering that the candidate was running on a reform platform aimed at curbing vice in the Memphis Tenderloin. The 1909 lyric, however, was the denizens of Beale Street announcing in verse that they were going to do what they wanted, Mr. Crump be damned. And a lot has been made over the years about whether Crump knew people were singing the lyric telling him to get himself some air, or possibly didn't understand the vernacular. Knowing what we do about Crump today, it could have even been a wink and a nod, candidate Crump publicly cracking down on vice to appease the conservative upper class, while privately conceding that he didn't care as long as the party stayed on Beale. Either way, it worked. Crump was elected mayor and soon became known as Boss Crump, head of a powerful political machine that would control Tennessee politics for the next half century. And though the Tennessee legislature would ultimately remove him from office after just five years for, ironically, refusing to enforce a state prohibition law, the Crump political machine simply moved underground, operating behind the scenes. Ed Crump would serve in the U.S. House of Representatives during the Great Depression. He was a regent of the Smithsonian Institute and was appointed to the Democratic National Committee. Most importantly, however, he would influence every gubernatorial race in Tennessee until his death in 1954. It's said that no Democrat appeared on any ballot in the state without his approval. Crop has often been credited as being a supporter of black voting rights in Memphis but there's evidence to suggest that his support only extended to those who voted the way he preferred. If he disagreed with the boss, he'd raise your taxes. And even though Crump would later claim that Handy's song had nothing to do with his electoral victory in 1909, the campaign changed politics in Tennessee, and the song changed music all over the world it somehow seems appropriate that a political song would kick off the first uniquely American musical genre. But in 1909, it wasn't quite a genre yet. It would take a few more years and a name change for the song called Mr. Crump to realize commercial success. But that's a legend in and of itself. 
And that's where we'll pick up next time on Blues Alley. Thank you for listening to American Entertainment Works Blues Alley. If you're able to support us, you can buy us a coffee on Kofi. It's not expensive, and you'll be helping us tell more stories about American culture. That's ko-fi.com slash American Entertainment Works, all one word. You'll find a link to our Kofi page in the episode notes. American Entertainment Works is a not-for-profit corporation located in Nashville, Tennessee, so your contributions are tax-deductible. The Blues Alley opening and closing themes were written by Uptown Al, as was this episode. Additional episode music was performed by The Cave Dwellers and AE Works recording artist Jim Holthauser. Bumper music was written and performed by Jonathan S. Anderson and Uptown Al. For a transcript and a list of sources for this episode, visit aeworks.org slash bluesalleysources. I'm your storyteller, Uptown Al. Thank you for listening to Blues Alley.